0: Well, we've been working through this uh, story of Esther. We're coming right towards the end uh, of the story. We've got chapter 9, the back end of chapter 9 that we're still going to work through, uh, and then chapter 10. It's interesting as I've kind of looked at the way we've spent time through this. For a start, uh, we've spent far more time on Esther than I expected to spend, uh, but I hope it's been helpful, hope it's been encouraging. Uh, but also what I've noticed is that we've spent more time at the beginning and we've met, spent more time at the end. We, we did the middle, middle chapters pretty much in one chapter at a time. Uh, and the beginning and the end we are spending more time on. I, think that's quite, I found that quite interesting because uh, we probably have a tendency not to do that. We probably have a tendency to treat the initial bit as just the interesting bit of introduction and then we have the story and then we have the end which is just, you know, the the great outcome. We tend to read it in that way. We tend to see it very much as a narrative from history where the core of the events are central to it. Now, there's no doubt at all that the uh, narrator who constructed the account of Esther in the Persian Empire certainly created it in a way which was to capture our attention, to grab us and to carry us along in this story to see how the characters were developing, to see the way the structure emerged, to see the idea of not just a a confrontation to one individual, Mordecai, but rather a confrontation towards the living God represented in all of his people, the Jews. And that's what we've seen, haven't we? Haman becomes opposition, not to uh, an individual, but to the whole of the purpose of God in making sure that salvation is delivered into this world. That's what we've realized is at stake. But what we see in this ending ending chapter is, if you like, it's a platform which impacts God's people, the Jews, right the way through until Jesus uh, comes into the world. In other words, the events that take place are something which they continue to remember. They continue to live uh, remembering these events. And in fact, it continues to this day for those who are Jews. Uh, So why are we where we are? Why do we remember it as believers in Jesus? And why is it relevant to us? Well, what we've already seen in last week was that the the evil opposition to God represented in Haman has been destroyed. And what we saw was the idea that the representation towards God was not just representation of a particular moment, but rather the long-term impact of the threat towards salvation. And the idea that in Haman and his sons... There was the idea that God's salvation wins, the long-term purpose for his offspring win, and the long-term of those who oppose ends. That's That's what we see in this stark, startling really, account of Haman being killed. And then on the day when all of God's people were to be killed, we find that Haman's ten sons are killed instead. In other words, the the Bible in this stark way in which God was willing to communicate to the ancients in the language that they understood, which was the language of power and the language of the sword, God was willing to communicate in that stark way, your determination to stand opposed to me from generation to generation will be destroyed. That's the idea that we see. Now what we see in this particular section, we we read an introduction which if you like creates the foundation for that, which was the the king asking uh, Queen Esther what had gone on, what was her wish, well she wished for more. What we see as a follow on is we see that there is uh, rejoicing as a result of what has gone on. So we see in verse uh, 23, uh, we see this. Get that up on the screen. So the, the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. So there's this, uh, there's this little indication of the response that, ha- that God's people had, the response of the Jews as a result of the destruction and turning around of those who were the threat or the enemy there is rejoicing there is celebration as a result of it i think that really strikes at the very core of our human identity doesn't it there is something in us which just instinctively would wish uh, to to rejoice to celebrate to 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 have a great time, to be happy, to be surrounded by a whole load of other people who equally want to celebrate. I kind of look out and I think, maybe there's one or two don't want to celebrate. (laughs) Uh, Maybe, you know, there are reasons why we might not feel as though we want to celebrate. Well, even if you think about that, even the fact that we might feel as though I don't want to celebrate, even that in and of itself says that celebration is a great thing. Because what we're actually saying is, I feel challenged, I feel threatened, I feel downcast. There are all sorts of issues in life which are stopping me from celebrating. And that fills me with sadness. But the core of me would wish to celebrate. We see it erupting in our consciousness on certain occasions, you know that there are moments in life that no matter what is going on, that you can't help but be happy and celebrate and be joyful. Whatever that is, whatever that is for you, there are times when that explodes out. We see it actually on national and even international scales as well. We see it maybe within families. We see it in uh, smaller communities. We definitely see it on national scale. We've seen over these past uh, years on a number of occasions uh, the destruction of the regime of a dictator which has caused a spontaneous response of celebration throughout the country. Uh, I guess that most of us can imagine in our minds, we can see the pictures that we saw on TV as that statue of Saddam Hussein uh, was dragged down and was celebrating as a result of the destruction of a dictator. Now, one of the sad things that we see is that no matter how much we celebrate, that celebration very often follows with sadness and more grief. And I guess for many of us, we think, hey, do you know what, I'm, ju- I'm, ju- I'm done with celebrating. I don't want to celebrate anymore. Because it seems as though every time that I celebrate, something else comes along and it hits me. And, and it knocks me back. And I'm done with it now. I think that is very understandable. Completely understandable In the world that we live in today. And yet at the same time. I want to encourage you this afternoon. That what this little section of the Bible gives us. Is a foundation, a platform that encourages us to realize. That the purpose of God in the world is to bring about a celebration. The purpose of God in the world Is to bring about joy. Isn't that an amazing thought? Why don't we? Why aren't we filled with joy? Because we we know that something else might come along and get us. The purpose of God and what we see in this little section here is a preparation for us to say there is something bigger, there is something better which is a complete, unending celebration. That is the trajectory of God's purpose. In other words, if we connect the whole of the story of Esther and this little section, we might be able to realize that that what we see is God saving His people in the story of Esther that erupts in celebration. And that's a little picture... Of a much bigger purpose, which is across the whole of time, across the whole of history, God saving his people to bring an eruption of celebration. Now, God's salvation in the story of Esther is temporary, God's salvation over the whole of history is permanent. Let's see how this works out. First thing we see is that the Jews are celebrating. They celebrate uh, in verse uh, 21. We see they celebrate annually. The 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month where their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. That is a really important phrase that the story uh, constructor, the narrator, uses. He's using a very purposeful set of words. He's using a set of words that says, I am going to turn around an experience into the opposite. We see uh, in verse 23, sorry, yeah, sorry, verse, t- verse 23, we see, Verse 22, we see. Sorry, uh, we see the uh, sorrow turned to joy, and mourning to celebration. That's a very deliberate. In fact, if we have our Bible antenna tuned, what we would realise for those of those of you who maybe are getting to grips with the Bible what we realize is that that idea is a really important concept. The idea of God turning around sorrow, turning around mourning to joy and celebration. Now if we think about that, and if we think about it in the context of the story, we realize something very important. We realize that the story writer is trying to encourage us to get underneath it. Get realise what is going on because that phrase is it's almost like a key to the whole of it. What's gone on is that it is God who has turned the sorrow to joy and the mourning to celebration. That's what's going on underneath the storyline. If we've been reading it, if we've been seeing what's going on, what we realize is that God's people are in a hopeless, impossible situation. And we see movement at the moment, don't we? It, once again, tragically, we see movement on a, an international scale uh, in terms of intervention once again in the Middle East. It's 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 tragic that we see this pattern repeating itself again and again. Uh, Whatever your political views, it's a tragedy that we see uh, violence and bloodshed on the agenda once again. What a a terrible, sad world that we live in. And yet what we have also seen on countless occasions is that we see a, a, a military force that is... In human terms, impossible to stand against. You remember the phrase, some of you will remember the phrase, shock and awe. If you remember that phrase from the past, it's the idea of a military power intervening in such an incredibly overwhelming way that, with a kind of shock and awe, the victory is won almost immediately. It's overwhelming. What we see in the story of Esther is that God's people were facing exactly that prospect. It wasn't a sort of a possibility that they might struggle. The whole of the power of the Persian Empire was behind the edict for them to be wiped out. They were facing shock and awe. They were facing absolute destruction. And it was one of those sort of Damocles moments, really. They knew that they were facing it, but they they weren't facing it kind of imminently. You know, will it happen as we seem to be facing at the moment? Will it happen in the next day or so? No, there was an absolute date months and months and months away. I want you to imagine... Just for a moment, I want you to imagine, if you could, putting your, uh, your Persian Jewish sandals on and stepping back into time and imagining yourself either living in Susa or living in out one of the outlying cities as a Jew. You are facing the prospect of spending months and months living in the knowledge that there is going to come a day When you and your family are going to be wiped out. Sorrow becomes really incredibly important in that context, doesn't it? Mourning becomes incredibly important in that context. You are facing the absolute certainty of death. And you have time to contemplate it. You and your family. That is what God's people were facing. Absolute certainty. We saw earlier on, we saw Mordecai tore his clothes and he covered himself in uh, ashes and he wore sackcloth. as a representation of the heartbroken aspect of his feeling and his response to the shock and awe that they were facing. They could not stand against it. And yet what we see as the story unfolds, it is God who turns it around. He turns the sorrow, He turns the mourning to joy and to celebration. He reverses the perspective. In other words, the Jews are celebrating not because they feel they have won, that is really important. They are not celebrating because they, they have won the victory. There is, a, there is a response of celebration because they are deeply conscious that it is God who has intervened in the whole of this situation to reverse the impossible. And we see that they continue to celebrate. They celebrated because they're... Notice the way it's written in verse 22, uh, as the month when their sorrow was turned. It doesn't say when they turned their sorrow. It says when their sorrow was turned. It's a beautiful little narrative tool that the writer uses so that the the switched-on reader is able to recognize that those who are celebrating are not celebrating because they have won, but because once again they have seen that God has won. Isn't it fascinating? We said right at the very beginning of this uh, study in this book, it's fascinating, this book, because God is not mentioned by name. I think that verse screams the hand of God. It screams the name of God without using His name. It's as though God is shouting, I am here in the silence. I am working it out. Now the other thing that we we also see is that it fits a pattern. It fits a pattern of how God works. It fits a pattern of how God has worked. And it actually fits a pattern of how God will continue to work. It's as though God is determined again and again and again in the lives of the, the heroes of the Old Testament. Again and again he is determined to create an environment which, which is just like this. It's impossible. Uh, The game is up. I am completely opposed. There is no way out of this. And yet God intervenes. It's as though repeatedly through the Old Testament, God is setting a pattern. He's setting a picture to say, you need to understand this is how I work in the world. I work in a way which makes sure that you understand that it is me that is working it. Let me give you a few. Just a few examples. Uh, there was a. R- r- the founder of the. Israel. Na- is, is, a nation of Israel. Father Abraham. He was asked by God. To go and to sacrifice his son. Which is mind blowing isn't it? A son who was promised. God allows Abraham to go right the way up the mountain carrying the wood. He allows Abraham to get right to the very point where literally the dagger is in the air ready to kill his son. And it is at that point that God intervenes. God, God, what was God doing? Was he saying, I want to test you to see whether you you really faithful? He's He's creating a pattern to say, this is how I'm going to work. I'm going to allow you to go right to the very extreme, to the point where you think the game is up, so that you know that it is me that intervenes. We see it in Joseph in Egypt. (laughs) Joseph on uh, one occasion is accused uh, of... uh, of a crime against the wife of his boss. And he ends up in prison. He's already been thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold into slavery. I mean, it, Joseph's life is an impossible uh, experience of hopelessness again and again. Sold by your brothers into slavery telling their older father that he's been killed by a wild animal. Just get rid of his name from this family. Sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, rises to prominence in the house of Potiphar, uh, and then he's accused uh, of uh, sexually abusing Potiphar's wife when in actual fact it's Potiphar's wife who's making a play on him. He ends up in prison for years. It seems as though the it's impossible for him to resolve this situation in the ancient days when you went in prison you just went into prison you stayed there pretty much unless there was some sort of resolution and yet God takes him right to the very point of thinking it can't be reversed and then he intervenes in the most remarkable of ways we read David's account again and again through the book of Samuel and also through the Psalms. How he feels as though, read his words, uh, if you like, through the Psalms, be one with his experience. I, that's, do, do you sometimes feel as though life is just an impossible series of opposition? Just one thing after another. David is your soulmate. If you read the Psalms, what you will see is that he experiences just that. Again and again and again, he talks about opposition. He talks about being stretched to the very ends of his experience. As though God is taking him beyond and yet again and again he's able to say, but I trust in this God. I trust in this God who has promised faithfully. Uh, to hold on to me, and we see that God intervenes in the life of David again and again. As As the king who was appointed at that time, Saul, seeks to take his life. And God takes David to the extreme, to the point where he thinks it's over, so that David knows that God is intervening. It's a pattern that God sets. You know, very often we don't even see that God is doing that in our lives. One of the problems is that we very often don't actually see that we are in real danger. I think that's one of the tragedies. We don't understand the kind of danger that we're in. You've probably heard very often... um, how somebody has expressed how God has helped them in a remarkable way, maybe saved them from a particular tragedy, whatever it might be. Uh, there was, there's just the most remarkable video has appeared on YouTube. It, I can't quite work out, you know, the video camera with the little date in the corner. It's dated the 31st of the 8th, 2013, which which means that it must have been filmed yesterday if the video camera is right. Um, It's the most amazing scene. It's uh, of a a landslide in Taiwan. And for some reason, somebody is filming out of a car uh, as they're driving along. Uh, and right on ahead of them is another car, I think it looks like a taxi, is, is driving along the road, and suddenly there's a whole load of uh, kind of muck and soil and all of that kind of thing, just washes across the road, hits the car, knocks it slightly sideways, as clearly a landslide hits the road. What follows is a boulder, falls off the mountainside into the road and kind of rocks towards the car and falls back. Literally, the boulder is uh, one and a half times the, the height of the car. It is this enormous, huge boulder that literally rocks towards it and pulls back. Now, the reality is that that car, if it hadn't been hit by that mud and knocked sideways... It would have been literally under where the boulder would have landed. And what we actually see is the doors open and people walk out. It is the most incredible. Now I think that that's very often a picture of where God takes us to. To the very extreme. And in this story, he is kind enough to allow us to see... To allow us to understand, to get, if you like, the video from a distance. So that we might see how God is intervening. You know, you will not know, you will never know perhaps, the times when God has intervened in your life. Because, actually, the rock fell behind you. And you were able to just on, drive on without ever realising Whatever it might be, there are many situations in our lives. It might be that the rock didn't miss. It might be that there is a real tragedy. You know, that's the reality in this story as well, isn't it? The fact that the very reason why hope was born was because Esther herself had already been through a tragedy, she was an orphan. She'd been she was being brought up by her older cousin Mordecai. She had already been through a tragedy, and yet, remarkably, what we see is that very tragedy is interwoven into the purpose of God to create this bigger picture of his plan of delivering. His people. Now, the great thing is, and the thing that I think in the middle of all of the chaos and in the middle of all of the pain and in the middle of all of the hurt, the thing that we can hold on to is to know that we are actually inside of the story of His salvation. That we are in it. For all of the things that happen, for all of the chaos, for all of the rocks across the road that miss and hit. We are in God's hand. That's the story of Esther. It reminds us that that is how God works. He allows us to get to the point where we think the whole thing is over. How can we know that? How can we be sure of that? And in actual fact, let me ask you a bit another question to open up the next kind of experience of Esther into the life of Jesus where does it connect with that let me ask you this question what do you believe really is the rock tumbling down the mountain in your life I think very often we have the idea that it's the things that happen the things that go on in life The things that are on the outside, which might knock us off course, which might hit us, they're the really bad things. The Bible wants to encourage us to see that there is something way more devastating, way more dramatic than ever the issues of life. And it's not on the outside, it's on the inside. It's an issue of our hearts It's an issue of the problems that we have going on. The Bible makes it really clear that the biggest enemy that we have is not the challenges of the events of life, it's the challenges of our own heart and human experience. The fact that we like to think that we're all on the side of the good, and yet the Bible convinces us we're far more on the side of Haman. We're far more on the side of rebellion. We're far more on the side of being in opposition to God. Romans chapter 3 puts it like this. As I've written, there is no one righteous, not even one. It's just the most beautifully leveling of verses. You might look around and you might think one of two things. You might might think uh, I'm better than X, Y, Z. And this verse says we're on a level. There's no one righteous. You might look around and you say, I'm never going to be able to live like X, Y, Z. And the Bible says, we're on a level. There's no one righteous. The great thing is that the Bible levels us all. You know, we love to think in this kind of idea of, where am I in terms of my righteousness? Where am I in terms of how good I am as a person? How, how often have you heard or said? You might still say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually quite a good person. I try to do X, Y, Z. The Bible says when it comes to the righteousness of God, it's all noise. It's just noise. It's just tiny little difference. It's like the crackle of the radio. The, the, the spectrum of right and wrong is just no one is righteous. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. You might say, but I know a whole load of people in this room who are seeking God. And I would say, you're absolutely right. There's a whole load of people in this room who are seeking God. But the reality is, it's not because they've decided to seek God. It's because God's got a grip on them. And said, right now it's time to seek me. Because by nature we are not righteous and we do not seek God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not, no, not even one. That's really, it, it's really straightforward. So where does this fit into this idea of celebration? Well, the great celebration that we actually see is that there is a moment in history where God does not take us to the edge... And then stop. So that we might see how devastating it might be. There is a moment in history where God doesn't stop. There is a moment in history. Where God pours out. All of the outcome. Of what it might be. And it's in Jesus. In fact Jesus. Just captures that very idea. He looks in the Garden of Gethsemane, he looks at the next period of time. Some of you might know the story, many of you might know the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He looks forward at what is going to happen. He sees that the reality is that there is impending suffering and death and trial and separation from his Father. He doesn't even understand the depth of that separation. I think we get a clear indication of that when he's on the cross. But he understands that there is going to come a crisis in relationship with his father. And he turns to his father and he says this. Now, if it's possible, this cup that you have given to me to drink, it's a great picture, isn't it? If it's possible, take this cup from me. Imagine if you were a Jew. That is effectively what you would have been saying in the Persian Empire in the day of Esther during those months leading up to the very day where everybody is going to be slaughtered. There's a great parallel there. You'd have been saying, if it's possible, Lord, take this cup from our lips so that we don't have to drink this death. And God says, yeah, I will. (laughs) I'll deliver you. But Jesus says, take this cup from my lips so that I don't have to drink this death. And his heavenly father stays silent. In fact, more than that, the book of Isaiah tells us this. The book of Isaiah, in fact, chapter 53, says that it is God who actually resolves to deliver The death sentence on Jesus. The most breathtaking. God the Father. Bruises. Crushes. The Son. It's as though the Father is hearing the prayer of Jesus. Deliver this cup from me. And he says not only will I not deliver the cup. But I will do the work of crushing you there's an interesting parallel there in terms of the crushing of jesus and the drinking of a cup of wine but those of you kind of want to think about some of those connections take that away ponder it it's really interesting but here we have god saying this moment no why and how does that connect with what we're seeing here We get the picture in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Where it says this. Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. I don't know whether you have ever thought about this. It's absolutely critical to the storyline of God's purpose of salvation. Jesus did not go to the cross, sadly, because it was the only thing that he could possibly do. He went to the cross because he could see beyond the cross a great celebration. You know, we have only limited visibility. We can only see things back there. We can only really see things that have happened, can't we? We look forward and we see things that might happen, but we can only really see the things that have happened. But God knows the things that will happen as well. And therefore, Jesus is able to go to the cross because he knows that it's going to result in celebration. He knows there's going to be celebration. He knows that you and me, if we believe and if we trust in him, are going to be part of that celebration. Have you ever tried celebrating alone? (laughs) You know, guess what? It's your birthday. And you're in solitary confinement. Whoopee! It just doesn't work, does it? Celebration demands others. And Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. Because He knows, He knows that you and me, if we trust in Him, are going to be part of that celebration. Because that is where the Bible is taking us to celebrate With him. Why is death part of it? Because the enemy inside needs to be destroyed for the celebration to be possible. We can't celebrate when we're unrighteous. And the Bible's already told us that no one's righteous. The great news is that Jesus endured the cross because he was there purchasing a people who would celebrate with him. He used exactly the words of Esther when he says this, Blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. Do you feel spiritually desperately hungry at times? If you trust in Jesus, he will satisfy you. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. That's that fascinating? That little idea of what Jesus uses in terms of words, the reversing. He's saying, I'm the one who can do it. But he also says this. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. you think Jesus was saying, Do you know what? Don't ever be happy. And don't ever eat a good meal. Of course not. He was actually saying, Don't think that this is everything. Because if you think that this is spiritual satisfaction now, You will be so broken. You will be so shattered. You will be filled with weeping. But when you know deep down that there has got to be more and Jesus becomes the answer, you will know that the future is celebrating. It's a done deal because of the cross. It's great news.